so we opened on, on a Friday and then we were at the market Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then on Monday, I didn't work because I could barely move my legs. And then on Tuesday, I went into, into the office. I couldn't stand being in that office. It just felt like... Just after one or two weekends. Wrong. Right. Like, I don't need... Well, not that I don't need to be here. I can't be here. My mind is there. My heart is there. This is torture. And so I did and it. De- and you developed that over a span, span of a couple of weeks. 72 hours. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It was like that. guest on this episode of the Work Not Work show is Sebastian Stabsib, co-founder of Phil and Sebastian Coffee Roasters. He just described his reaction to opening their first store and, as it turned out, bringing an end to his career as a full-time professional engineer. Coffee had been his passion for seven years, and now it was his profession. The Phil and Sebastian brand he co-founded with Phil Robertson in 2007 sources, processes, and serves ultra-premium coffee using an approach more akin to winemaking than traditional brewed coffee. The most visible aspect of Phil and Sebastian are their beautifully designed and well-appointed cafes in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Their staff are superbly knowledgeable and well-trained and strive, quite simply, to make no less than the best coffee in the world. The cafes are the most visible component of their brand, but by no means are they limited to selling just any old beans. Phil and Sebastian have dedicated themselves to the vertical integration of their operations. When you have a cup of coffee at Phil and Seb, it can be traced back to the seed that was used to plant the tree that eventually produced the beans that were then shipped to their roasting operation in Calgary. From there, onwards to the roasters, grinders, and espresso machines in one of their amazing cafes, and finally to your cup. Their operations are truly breathtaking in scope. We even break a little news on this episode as they seek to take their brand to the next level. Love coffee? Love hanging out in your local coffee joint? Ever thought of starting your own? Or just interested in a great story? In any of these cases, you will not want to miss this ride through the life of our guest, Sebastian Stabsib, on episode 12 of the Work Not Work Show. Sebastian Stabsib, welcome to the Work Not Work Show. It's a pleasure to meet you and have you share our story with our audience. Uh, and I have to say I'm a huge fan of your product. Thank you. Thank you. It's fun to be here. If the story of Phil and Sebastian were a movie, what would be the big plot twist around which the entire story would rotate? Well, I think there's probably a, a couple of things that they're not events necessarily that I can attribute our change in strategy or our shift and mentality. I think it was a slow and steady learning. Our business was really founded on passion and enthusiasm alone. There was very little talk of money, profitability, margins. It was, let's do what we love to do, and let's hope people can latch onto that and appreciate it, and we'll figure out the financials after. And it was really almost that ignorant. And that's been, I think, part of the secret of our success. But at the same time, it's been a a recipe for overspending on R&D projects, on getting carried away with 
more learning than we can afford. Mm-hmm. If you look at the way companies are generally structured, they have a certain budget allocated towards R&D. For us, it was anything we make money-wise, we're just going to spend it. Mm-hmm. And, and learning more about coffee, pushing the bar with what we could do with the equipment. So in our early days, especially, we modified a lot of it. We added cooling mechanisms to the grinders to keep up with the heat generated during busy times. We added timers and flow control mechanisms to the espresso machines to uh, help us with the extraction for espressos, and which is obviously the base for most of our drinks. Phil's written a great deal of software to control our roasters. So there's been a lot of R&D on our end that early on was sort of completely free to cost us as much uh, as we could literally afford. And we would create jobs for people Mm -hmm. that we wanted to keep. We thought, okay, well, this person adds a lot of value to the company. So they're a little bit tired of being a barista. So let's make them head of quality control for our espresso, just espresso. And we were a company of like seven employees with like three or four or five directors of stuff <laughs> just to keep people engaged. So in our early days, we were passion only. Business was this thing that, you know, we'd get together once a year and review our financials and say, okay, well, did we lose? Did we make? With no real sort of forward thinking about what do we want this business to look like? Okay. Let's create some structure to the business and then let's let the rest of the things fall into the structure. There's a story that's widely retold on the street about the two of you writing a business plan for Phil and Sebastian while you were both attending a course at the University of Calgary and that you didn't get a particularly good grade, but you decided to act on the business plan anyway. Is any part of that story true? No, 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 zero. We did not write any, th- any business plans while we were in school. We studied engineering. Right. So, um, well, that was going to be my question is that, so it's not true. Describe how you and Phil got together um, yeah. and developed the concept that eventually became Phil and Sebastian. So we studied engineering at the University of Calgary. We met in the second year of engineering and we became lab partners and um, really hit it off right away. We both had a very similar approach to our work, very meticulous, very complete with a you know real desire to learn the underlying principles of everything we were doing as opposed to just knowing how to get to an answer. We were both weren't afraid to work hard and pull all-nighters and do whatever it took to get the work done. So we developed really good chemistry, became friends outside of school. And then we realized that we were both interested in cooking and food and wine and both sort of pushed each other a little bit to learn more about these things. And then over time that sort of spilled into coffee, which was really just a functional drink for us when it was 11 o'clock at night and, you know, we <laughs> got you six <laughs> hours <laughs> worth of work to do. Right. So, but over time, coffee it became more of an interest to sort of develop into an obsession. He had his machine, I had my machine, and, and we, you know, he'd come over to my house, I'd go, and we just, it was sort of these mini labs of trying to feed the beast a little bit. So were you at the point where you were thinking that this was going to be something commercial or this was just an interest at this point? Early on, it was purely an interest. I wanted to make amazing espresso in my house. The business got started because two paths came together at the same time, which was the path of the coffee being this obsession of mine and Phil's. And we we started 
having these aha moments going, wow, it's amazing if you do it right and if you learn and if you source properly and all, all those steps. And at the same time, both of us were already working as engineers and I had this urge to build something. And I didn't feel like the life of being behind a desk and designing things, but I didn't feel like I was destined for that long term. I wanted to be a little bit more in control of my own destiny. And, and I, I was in the tech sector, which would go up and down in, in my eight years of, of working as an engineer. I went through like one, two, three, four, five different um, layoff scenarios in the companies that I worked in. So, oh, so you did actually work as a professional engineer? For oh, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah, we graduated in 2000, and, and we started Phil and Sebastian officially in, in early 2007. Oh, so you did have some experience as an engineer. So yeah. you had something to compare it to. Oh, yeah. I originally had this idea that you had done nothing other than start Phil and Sebastian right out of school. No, well, we were in school. We had no idea that Phil and Sebastian was a thing. said, you know what, I, I think I'm going to stop being an engineer, I'm going to start being a coffee guy. It was sort of a, a two-step turning point. The first step was realizing that I needed to build something. And I, at that time, I wasn't sure what it was going to be. I started to think it could be food-related. I had you know, recently been in France and loved the crepes, and I thought, oh, maybe there's something interesting with coffee and crepes. And, but then I started to really develop this interest in coffee and, and realized that in Calgary, there really wasn't any good option at the time. And uh, there was a cafe that's still there called Bumpy's that I think was doing some better um, coffee than, than over on 8th else. Street, 8th yeah. and about 12th, yeah. I think. Yeah. And, they, were, and uh, they, were, they had some nice coffee, but they were also more of a diner. It wasn't a, really like a coffee first. Like you walk in and, and you're like, I am in coffee Mecca. <laughs> right. um, and, and that's what I always wanted was to create that sense of comfort for someone who walks into our cafe to go, oh, I'm here. I don't have to worry about coffee. These guys know. They're obsessed. I'm taken care of. And that wasn't here. And it, in fact, it, it wasn't really much of that in North America. There were a handful of examples at the time. Now it's exploded. So you had a realization that that, that was a market that wasn't being addressed yeah, locally. And, and at the same time, it, it was the market that I was truly interested in. Right. So what was the tipping point? What got you into saying, you know what, I'm going to go through the process of developing a business the big one was my first set of layoffs in, in high tech where I, I everyone you know thinks you have a cushy engineering job but you really don't you have the appearance of a cushy job while you have it but it's volatile and maybe way more volatile than starting your own business right the first layoffs it still sort of hit me hard and I thought well that really doesn't feel good to walk into work and being told that you're not working anymore. It's a lack of control. Yeah, and it, and it just didn't didn't really sit well with me. So that was the first turning point. And then, you know, the, the second was realizing that I had a, a knack and an interest in coffee and, a, and a, a talent for working with it. And same with Phil. Those paths of starting something new 
and building something and coffee being the one that, you know, our true love sort of came together at the right time. I mean, if it happened now, we may not be pushing for coffee as much just because if since we've opened, there's probably 25, 30 cafes that are doing um, something in the same vein as what we're doing. How did your families, parents and spouses mostly, handle the fact that you wanted to do this as opposed to pursue a more traditional or continue to pursue a more traditional path in engineering? Did your family at some point say, you've got to be crazy to do that? They never did. They may have thought it. Um, they may have felt that I was making uh, a, uh, the wrong choice at the time, but they really never showed any of it. And you know, the, the main people that I had to account to really were, were my parents at the time. When, when I made the decision, I was 28. So even though I lived on my own, my parents were still very involved in my life. I mean, they still are, but I probably wouldn't ask them for as much advice now as I did then. Well, but your, parent, uh, your parents are always your parents. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then my in-laws, you know, I was uh, providing for our household and that would stop. It was an interesting time for me engineering-wise because I had found a bit of a niche inside the work that I was doing where I was earning in, within a, a span of three years, I tripled my salary as an engineer because of that specialization that I was doing. So We don't need to get off on a tangent, but what was the nature of the engineering work you were doing? It was high-tech, like telecommunications, so mostly high-speed wireless internet. Once you had decided to build... Phil and Sebastian, did you have anything, did you keep anything going on the side? Did you keep any consulting business or activities going to kind of keep the bills paid? Or did you devote yourselves 100% to, to starting the business? So I had a contract with uh, my last engineering job. We opened at the market on March 30th of 2007. And my contract ended on April 15th, something like that. Like There was an expectation that I would have a minimum of about 20 hours a week. I was mostly advising the CEO and some technology related um, matters. And so I, I had to meet with the CEO the, the, the week before to talk about a renewal. And, and uh, so before we opened, I felt like I would renew, maybe keep like just a 10 hour a week commitment. That probably alone would have paid all of my bills. Right. And so then we opened our doors and we opened at the farmer's market, which was open Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So I, and Thursday was a big prep day for us. So I really had Monday through Wednesday free. I thought I would keep going with this uh, consulting gig, which was very uh, lucrative for me. So we opened on, on a Friday and then we were at the market Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then on Monday, I didn't work because I could barely move my legs. And then on Tuesday, I went into, into the office. I couldn't stand being in that office. It just felt like, just after one or two weeks. Wrong. Right. Like, I don't need, well, not that I don't need to be here. I can't be here. My mind is there. My heart is there. This is torture. And so I and did you it. And you developed that over a span, span of a couple of weeks. 72 hours. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It was like that. I, I had a meeting with the CEO about my contract extension. And um, and I told him, I said, I, I can't. I, can't. I, I have, my heart is like, is so gone. I can't even, I can't be here. And he kept throwing some different numbers at me and different, you know, and, and it was just like, that doesn't matter at all. I can't, I, I, I just simply can't, even though I probably in retrospect, it was maybe a bit of a mistake because I ended up taking a 
personal financial hit over the first few years of business. But do you feel that the fact that you made more or less a clean break was elemental to your eventual success? Yes, absolutely. That if you carried on sort of splitting your time and splitting your attention between the two, that you wouldn't have been able to have the same kind of success that you've had so far? I think so. I'm not a a great business expert, but I really think that starting a successful business, I see it very much like a plane taking off. You you need to reach that speed, otherwise you're not taking off. And uh, I think that's the number one mistake people make when they start their own business is they they start things on the side, they're semi-committed to it, and they and you know they see some successes, but they they're not sustained because it's hard because you need to devote that time and energy and sweat and tears into it. Few businesses are really that easy where you can just start it on the side and, and, and do well. So I, I feel like for, for us, if, if we were going to quit, it was going to be all in, didn't work out, as opposed to half in, wait a couple of years, and then make a decision to go all in or not. It was two weeks after you opened at the Calgary Farmer's Market that you had a great review written by noted Calgary food writer John Gilchrist. And and they did a superb job of it. I mean, these are two smart guys. And so they really picked up on on not just uh, the, the, the technical aspects of it, but the cultural aspects of it, the whole uh, uh, the whole atmosphere around coffee. They really nailed it right right out of the gate. I mean, they were they were pumping out uh, decent coffee there right from the get go. And yeah, it was interesting. You know, I would sit there and watch people come up and just sort of wait in line. You know, sort of like they're shaking a little bit. You know, a little little sweat forming on the brow. You know, because they need their caffeine. And, and then they they'd have one sip, and you know, the eyes roll up and. And people are going, oh my God, I've tasted real, really good coffee here. You know? uh, so it was, uh, there were, like I say in the, in the article, I, I witnessed instant conversions on the spot. So yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> it was an interesting time. And I thought, I thought in my article, I'd have a little fun with it and with the guys themselves. And, and so we did. would have turned out if that hadn't happened or if it had happened maybe a year after you'd opened well john has since become a, a good friend and you know and he doesn't drink coffee anymore for <laughs> for health reasons and at the time he he was quite a coffee lover I, I remember when he walked in and i that was probably one of the most nerve-wracking moments of my life just knowing that he's drinking them and he's going to write something about them and and I didn't know him that well at the time. I was so intimidated. I think the article was reflective of our effort. If the article hadn't come out or if he felt like he had nothing positive to say so he wouldn't write about it, we probably wouldn't be in business. And so, I, and it's not because John wrote about it that we suddenly became successful. It, I think it was the combination of the fact that like, we really had brought equipment that wasn't here before. We really had trained ourselves to a level that no one here had trained themselves before. 
Um, we really cared in the execution. And if I was making a drink and it didn't look good, I didn't serve it. And I would tell the customer, I'm sorry, it's going to be 10 minutes, but it's going to be worth it for you. And I wasn't afraid of that. And we're a little bit more understanding of people's time pressures now than we were then. But I really felt like if I couldn't make something for you that would knock your socks off, I wasn't going to serve it to you. And when you say you, you mean yourself like yeah. with your own hands. Oh, yeah. We worked for the first two or three years. Phil and I worked every hour that we were open. That was key. We built culture, we built expectations, work ethic, and that culture still lives to this day based on the, the core people around us seeing us in the way that we would like the company to operate. I was really nervous when John's article was about to come out, but at the same time, I felt that we were doing things right. We had taken the time to learn and, and study. At the time, we weren't roasting, so we had studied and, and tasted coffees from roasters all over the world to figure out the ones that work best for us. And, uh, and we were so uncompromising with quality that I really felt like no one could knock our quality. They could maybe knock our service because we were so passionate about our product that we were a little bit less concerned with what people thought and how people felt coming into our cafe. And again, this is an adjustment over time that we've made, but there was a bit of not arrogance in there, but it's a little... I, when I read Steve Jobs' book, it reminded me a lot of that when he, he says, well, I'm not here to give people what they want. I'm here to give people what they don't know they need. And that really resonated with me because that's how I felt about coffee. We opened a cafe in Calgary and we didn't offer the top two selling beverages from Starbucks lineup, dark roast and frappuccino. If I were to go to a business school and say that that's we're doing that, in a market that's been known to only drink that. Some might call it suicide, but for us, those drinks do nothing for me. I mean, the, the, the blended ice drink actually could be really good if it's done properly. Starbucks, the way they make it is, I don't think it even has any real coffee in it. But for us, it was, we want to showcase these light roast coffees that taste like fruits and nuts and chocolates and, and in a way that people will be so surprised and some of them might not be to their liking, but at least they'll appreciate that coffee can be so different depending on where it's coming from. That was the whole thing. It was about giving people something new and letting them have that wow moment that we experienced back in the day that said, oh, wow, this coffee tastes like tea, but it's coffee and it tastes like flowers. What is going on here? Mm -hmm. I didn't know coffee could be like that. And then we help people find their comfort zone within our range of coffees. Right. No, for us, that was, that was really key was to not focus so much on, on what people were used to and just give them what we loved and what we felt was a good representation of what coffee can be. And so when John's article came out, it was focused on the equipment and our training and on the, and the end product. I, I think it went hand in hand with the effort we had put up to that point to present something worthy of a, of a good article. I'm obviously I'm very thankful and grateful that he saw us in a positive way. Right. But with, without that article, it probably would have meant that we hadn't done our homework properly and we wouldn't have impressed as much. But the article certainly reinforced it. And the day the article came out, we had a 
50-person lineup all day long. Well, you make a good point, and that is that you simply were getting credit for the time and effort that you'd put into it to that point. But if he'd simply not walked in that day, or if he'd gotten sick, or it was it had a flat tire, or just hadn't made it, I mean, could things have turned out differently, do you think? For sure, that article had a an, an impact where the, if you look at it on a graph, there's like a bit of a surge because of it. It was always part of your plan to roast your own coffee, mm-hmm. which is to say to vertically integrate from field to cup. What's the reason for doing that exactly? Well, I mean, I think if you've felt a theme so far today is we like to be in control. And so when you don't roast your own coffee, you get a box of coffee every week and, and you hope that the roast that of this week matches the roast of last week and that coffee tastes similar and, and has the similar attributes and it's you dial or set up your equipment similarly from roast to roast. But that couldn't be any further from the truth. So that's not the case? No. So same supplier, same very, fields. Very inconsistent. And it would arrive and it would be completely very different from what it was last week. Very, yeah, very inconsistent. So for us, that was always a big struggle is we'd get the coffee and go, oh, it's really good this week. And next week, well, we don't like it as much this week. Was that your refined palate or was it really pretty black and white? For sure. It takes experience to be able to discern those things. I mean, there were some cases where it was very black and white. In general, it was, there, there were more nuance, right? So we're talking about a coffee that was, oh, this week it tastes like pineapple and papayas. And the next week it tastes like chocolate. So when we're trying to present coffee in, in a similar vein as wine, we don't have the confidence to be able to talk about those tasting notes from week to week. That's difficult for us. Roasting was uh, definitely in the roadmap in order to say, okay, well, now if we're inconsistent, then at least we can do something about it. Coffee is a natural product, obviously. It grows in a tree. It's harvested and, and processed at a farm. And the quality of that raw material, that's the top of your quality chain right there. And from there, you can maintain it or you can mess it up. We had started to learn and and read and understand that world a little bit more and felt that we had to go direct to the source and become experts, which we're still in the process of becoming experts, and really try to take control of that as well. And so that we're truly integrated now from the seed that's planted in the farm to the final cup that um, our customers get to drink. attribute your success in being able to carve your way into that business, I would imagine, just given the the history of coffee, that those relationships in those growing regions would be well-established probably for decades. So how is it that an upstart from Calgary Mm -hmm. was able to carve their way into that business and actually begin to talk to growers? There's probably two or three elements there that came together for us. First, and I think really has been a, a key, key important element is that I speak 
fluent Spanish. I was born in Argentina. I moved to Canada when I was 13. Oh. So Spanish is my mother tongue. That's really in South and Central America, which represent 80% of our purchases. I can go and speak the native tongue of all the growers. Oh, that's huge. So that, that's been a, a huge bonus for us from a, a sourcing perspective. The second element is that I would say starting at around 2005, 2006, the coffee buying model at the countries of origin really started to shift. The way they, they worked before is all about consolidation. So growers would submit their coffees to a cooperative or an intermediary, and they would consolidate coffees from a region, give them a brand, and say, oh, this is from Huehuetenango in, uh, in Guatemala. That's been the history. In the course of the mid-2000s, you started to see some roasters asking some of these consolidators to keep the different growers separate so they can taste them and see if one grower is better than the other. And if they found one, they would not blend it with the rest and start to sell it with the uh, name of the producer. There was a term for that coin, direct trade. That term now has been sort of a little bit abused. But in essence, direct trade and and the the sourcing model that that emerged is, is more about trying to find really great coffee producers that have amazing conditions, but great varieties planted in their farm. And they are meticulous in their work so that they can be consistent. They can have some process behind their work, which is really, really important, especially in a part of the world that's not used to that with low levels of education and where most of the work is based on tradition and convenience rather than it needs to be this way because the pH has reached a certain level. But those growers that take those steps really separate themselves from the pack. So for us, it's not that we're just about going to the you know the highlands of Colombia on my backpack and I rent a donkey and go and find it myself. It's been about... These are all things that you've actually done. Well, I have, but not truly on my own. You had um, mentioned earlier this friend of mine in Costa Rica, Francisco Chicomena, he he is someone who came from a, a very large exporting company in, in Costa Rica and used to sell really big farms and consolidate lots of coffees and sell them to Illy, Starbucks, big companies. And then he saw an opportunity for a niche in the market where he could maybe help connect coffee roasters with growers. So he launched his company in, in 2009. So we were one of six clients that he had. So he was selling us, but he was also selling the growers. So he would, and he's a very charismatic and enthusiastic guy. So he would you know, get me in his car and we'd drive to see farmers. And some of them he knew, and some of them were new. And, and we would shake hands and I would tell them about my business and I would show them our coffee package and say, you know, the name of the producer is on, you know, the, the package. So you would get connected to the final consumer and we're really interested in working long-term and, and it, we had a pitch and they had a pitch um, and it was, well, our coffee's great. And, and so, um, and, you, the, and you got the sense that this was the first time that the growers were hearing this kind of messaging. Many of them. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there were some that, that had already, been established. Um, there's, you know, companies, 
that, like, for example, Intelligentsia out of Chicago, they started sourcing direct quite a bit earlier. They were pioneers, innovators in that in that field. Stumptown, originally out of Portland, now they've grown. Right. Um, they were innovators. Lots of respect for the 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 path they laid out for people like me that came not that much after, but a little bit after, and they they made it a lot easier. Just like cafes have exploded, the the roasters themselves have exploded too, and and now there's a, a wide range of direct trade. Uh, but people like Francisco Mena. The, they are the people on the ground that are truly connecting people like me to the the end producer. And then how much, how that relationship evolves is entirely up to, up to the roaster and their philosophy. So for us, I'm not that interested in just going there, getting a photo with a with a grower, shaking his hand, and you know, see you later. To me, that 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 marketing uh, element of it is is. Um, Pretty much everywhere now. Any any coffee roaster that whether they ever truly travel or not, they have photos of the farmer because they're easy to get. The, the exporter can go there, take a couple of photos with their with their phones, and no big deal. But for us, it's about working on the ground and understanding some of the real limitations that the producer has to achieving their top quality potential consistently. And working with them to overcome those limitations and understanding their business model, making sure that the way that we would like to pay them and how much we're offering to pay them and incentives that we provide to them from quality perspective are worth their while. And we've done many of them that I've asked the farmers at the end of the year, was that worth your while? And they said, truly? No. We lost money doing what you told us to do, even though the coffee was better and you paid us more. It was a distraction from what we really do on our core business of the farm. And so for me, that's really important because if we find a really good producer, we want to work with them for years, decades. And that's how we operate. I, I spend a lot of time meeting with, uh, with new coffee producers and understanding, are we philosophically aligned? Because if we're not, it doesn't matter if their coffee is fantastic. We're just going to clash. Next year, I'm going to ask them to improve on a certain element and they're going to not be on the same page. So for me, raw potential of the land, the varieties, the geographical conditions for growing are key, but pale in comparison to the individual I'm working with. And if the individual I'm working with is wants to do amazing, they will do amazing. And they can't overcome bad geographical conditions, but they can overcome challenges. And uh, and those are there's many of those in, in coffee farming. Sebastian, to me, it sounds like at one level, you're trying to find a better way of sourcing the product and delivering a higher quality product to your customers. On the other hand, I sense a strong human development component. This is something that, that we've thought about. We, we have a, a source of, of revenue and sales we've developed over the years that's really strong. And we have a really uh, high cost base for running our business. It's the expensive way, to do it the way you do the it. The way we do it. And so we've often asked ourselves, why don't we not travel and just get them to send us the coffee here? And it'll be maybe 10% worse, maybe 12%. In some cases, it'll be 50% worse. And then the question is, will our customers notice? That's the million-dollar question because it's a really slippery slope of, well, they won't notice if we buy, oh, this coffee arrived damaged. Well, we'll use it. They won't notice. And we've become 
popular, I think, because we think that the customers will notice everything we notice. We're the, we're the gate for that quality. I, I'm sure that if we decided tomorrow to switch things around, not just in the coffee sourcing world, but the way we roast, the way we run the cafes, we would probably increase our bottom line by 10% tomorrow. But only 10%. Yeah, well, maybe more, but um, no, I'm saying like 10% of revenue. Like, right. So probably triple our bottom line. Right. Okay, I understand. Um, so, so there's there, there's pressure to so, do it a different way. Yeah, but then you come back to, okay, are we doing what we love still, or is it now just more about creating a better bottom line? Are we best in class? Because that's really important for us, not just in Calgary but worldwide. That's our goal. We want to be the best. So if we're making these compromises now because they're great for the bottom line, are we still going to be best in class? Mm, probably not. Is that going to be just a short-term improvement? And are we eventually going to see people going, well, it's not as good as it used to be, so we're going to go somewhere else. Those are the, the three things that, that you have to remind yourself when you, you, the tempting opportunities come and you go, well, you know, I could buy really cheap coffee we can buy coffee for a quarter of the price we're buying right now, you know, and we spend like $1.6 million on coffee every year. So we could probably save a million dollars a year on wow. coffee if we wanted to. Wow. And, um, and basically put that in your pocket for a year. Sure. Right. And, uh, but. And after that, who knows? Yeah. But the, so then the question is, is that what about the relationships? We, uh, we've got producers that we've been working with since 2009. I, you know, their kids were six years old. Now they're, you know, big teenagers. Right. They they had a little hut, some of them, and now they have a house with a kitchen separated with cement floors as opposed to mud floors. And for me, I go to these places between two and four times a year, and I see the progress, and I think our model is working with them um, or it's working for them. That alone brings a, a, a lot of satisfaction to me on a personal level, company-wide, sure, and, and maybe we don't share it enough. Part of not sharing it is sometimes I feel like it's their work, not my work, that has done that. They, they have good coffee. They've been committed to doing it right. We're just paying for them for that because it's worth it and we can recoup the cost on our end. On behalf of your customers, and I am one of your customers, it's all worth it. I mean, the product that gets delivered in that cup that I bought this morning, the product was superior. And what you just described and articulated for me is kind of the method by which that occurs. And from what you described, it's not a zero-sum game. Your being successful in this market does not necessarily mean driving the cost down to the producer so he can't survive. I think it, it has to be a mechanism that has some sort of self-sustainability. Otherwise, it's all short-term. And the, the trips that I make and the, the investment that I put in personally into these farms, 
if I'm switching farmers every year, every second year, because I'm not paying them enough, that's also that 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 that's a cost I have to be aware of, both financially and emotionally, because you get attached to these producers and their families and and the coffee, and the the effort that they they've put in. You see them when when they started, they had a really good raw product, but almost no facilities. And over time, because of our experience in traveling and seeing and researching and learning, I often will say, oh, you know, the, I've seen this in another country works really well. And then the, the producer will go and do it. And you see their facilities improving from like this really tiny farm that produces four bags of coffee a year to like a more established, well-organized machine that produces 35, 40 bags of coffee a year. For me, that's a, I'm, I'm rooting for them. Uh, I, I taste all the coffees that I, that I buy. No matter where I am, I always taste them blind. So I don't know what coffees I'm tasting until I reveal. And, and for good reason, because I'm normally, I'm rooting for all these coffees. So I, I would be biased and say, oh, no, I know that producer. Let's give it a high score. But instead, I'm scoring them blind and then I'm revealing. And then, you know, it's always when, you know, when you see some of these producers that you're, you know, naturally you've got some of your favorites and uh, you see them performing well. You get, you know, really excited and excited to bring it back to Calgary and share it and go, oh, yeah, try this coffee. Really good. You had operated in the Calgary's farmers market through to the opening of the Chinook Mall store. Um, so you closed the market store, which was profitable, and opened the Chinook store, which was initially a money loser for you. This seems like your first big setback. How did you handle it? Did you have a backup or back out plan? Uh, and how did it impact your relationship with Phil? So yeah, it was definitely our our big first uh, financial setback. Chinook seemed like it was going to be this crazy, busy, everyone I talked to that worked in malls said, well, you know, whatever you, you do in sales somewhere on a, on a street, you're going to do a lot more at, at Chinook. It's the, the traffic there is insane. And we, we listened to that and just built this cafe, just built for speed and volume, but also had some of the like we had the slow bar where you know you could pick the coffees and so it was really meant to have a lot of staff in it and and so you know we opened and and especially that end of the mall was just not busy and we we had picked our location to be sort of this reprieve from the mall hidden away in a corner where you know people had to come and find us and at the beginning people didn't know where we were so and the rent is really high so you have no margin for error in that environment. You have to be producing at a pretty high level and efficiently because you're paying a lot of rent. So for us, did we have a backup or backout plan? Definitely not a backout plan. And we hadn't really thought about it not being successful at the beginning. Like, it, I mean, it was just, there was a, a lot of euphoria uh, surrounding the Chinook opening and, and we had, you know, hit crazy heights at the farmer's market. We opened at Marta Loop and it was a very successful cafe in a neighborhood and, and in a location that you wouldn't have thought would have been that busy. So Chinook was sort of like, oh, okay, what are we going to do here? It's going to be crazy. And then, um, you know, we started seeing the numbers negative and negative and negative. And, and I, I never feared that we would be uh, in a position where we would have to you know, take any drastic steps in terms of closing anything refinancing the business but obviously uh, I lost a lot of sleep over it that's the one thing over time of the business that 
there's two elements of it that really affect me on a, on a high, high stress level. One is having a negative month that ruins the next 60 days for me. And uh, Negative as in you lose money that yeah. month. Right. Which even to this day, sometimes it, it, it happens. I hate that feeling. And then, um, and then the other is, is there are people, people issues, which are very stressful as well. And uh, so those are the two things in, in our business. But yeah, so Chinook, how did it affect uh, my relationship with Phil? It didn't really have any effects either way, really. We just, um, we had to sort of reevaluate how we would staff it and how we would run it and try to make things more efficient. And, uh, and you know, it, it took a little bit of time to build the sales to the level that they needed to be at Chinook. But, you know, Chinook's become a, a really you know, good story for us in terms of, of um how it's operating and, and the service it provides and, and its profitability. So you and Phil didn't differ on how you could address the concerns that you had about that particular store. You had a, you were of like mind yeah. as, as you appear to be on most things. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I think we're extremely well aligned. You know, we, we're, we're very different also. Part of it is that we just, we work really well together. So I might not agree with everything that he has to say, but I can I can hear it, I can understand it, I can appreciate it, and same with him. He he'll push more on on uh, on certain elements at times, and I'll push more on others. And I think sometimes you know that that balances us. You know, whenever we have let's say a negative month, I I go you know crazy into well, are we we're doing too many engineering things? We have to you know think of this more like a business, and then you know, which pushes him because he's he's really quite the scientist so it pushes him out of that a little bit more and then if I get carried away with you know some some other initiatives that are maybe distracting but you know interesting opportunities he also you know pushes me back to the core of our business and then you know vice versa sometimes I get into sort of rabbit holes of of, uh, quality and improving every minutia of our quality and then sometimes you know just we have to pick our battles there too. You found lots of applications for your engineering skills. I'm thinking of the data loggers that you put in the non-refrigerated shipping containers and writing software for your roaster. Would you recommend engineering as a prerequisite <laughs> for getting into the coffee business? Engineering has, has served uh, a really vital role for us. It's allowed us to solve problems. I think engineering is really about solving problems and it's about taking a step back and analyzing. And I think it's served us really well for that. Coming into this business without much uh, food beverage experience was really good. We established a culture that was sort of counterculture to what the this industry is, which is you know high turnover, lowest possible wages, low investment in people, not treating people really very well at all. We didn't come from that background. We came from a professional engineering background where you were in an office environment with certain norms for how to conduct yourself and uh, and how to treat people. We sort of brought that to the cafe and to the kitchen. You didn't know any better. I mean, you didn't. You yeah, know, just, that was just natural for you, right? And so it's probably increased our costs, but it's also, also uh, been part of the reason we've held on to people for a long time.
does the Phil and Sebastian concept scale? Can you retain your signature quality? We've talked about that quite a bit. And what seems to me to be obsessive attention to detail, which is a good thing, and scale up to a dozen stores? Can you scale up to 50, 100? Could you operate in multiple cities? Could you go to the US or the UK? The, the real, the true answer is that with every location that you open, you dilute your knowledge base and your core staff base a little bit. So from a, purely from a, workforce perspective, it, it gets a bit more challenging to keep a really, really strong team. If we, we had 10 or 12 in Calgary, it would be really tricky to find you know, 12 coffee ambassadors for those cafes. A manager in a more traditional, it would be a more traditional way of describing that. We, we organize our, our cafes into the manager, which is responsible for service, operations, and then you've got the coffee ambassador, which is really accountable for quality right. and for the product. Right. That's and different from the manager. Yeah. Okay. And the coffee ambassadors are people that sort of just love coffee and just want every customer to experience it. And they're passionate. And they, they translate that love and interest to their uh, coworkers. Right. It does get a little bit trickier from a workforce perspective. From a roasting and coffee buying perspective... No problem. It can scale. Uh, in fact, sometimes having a little bit more buying power with our model can be really helpful mm-hmm. because I can make larger commitments to certain producers and I can, with those commitments, I can also attach certain expectations. There's a lot we can do with a bit more volume on the, on the sourcing side. So that's, that actually is a quality improvement as you grow. It's actually, you know, if you're, if you're a really, really tiny roaster, it's actually really hard to do great quality because you, you don't have much control on, the, on this green coffee that you're buying. And as you get larger, you, of course, reach a point where if you're really, really large, now you can't work with these tiny producers. We're nowhere near that point. And from a roasting perspective, we could triple in size and our roasting wouldn't necessarily get worse or better. It, we're, we're set up that that can scale. The, the difficulty is the workforce in the cafes, so that, that whether that's in Calgary or different cities. I think it could scale with the workforce, but it would have to be a slightly different model that didn't depend on Phil and myself to be so involved in a cafe. So if we found, for example, uh, someone like our, one of our longtime managers who was really interested in branching out and, and being a part owner or something, then we maybe would partner up with them and say, oh, you want to open a cafe in Banff? Sure, let's, let's do it together. And, you know, you own 30, we own 70, whatever it is. That's your baby. You're caring for it. You're hiring the right people. You know our culture. You know our philosophy. You know our, our importance on quality. Go for it. You could probably find 15, 20 people to do that with, and, and you'd have a, a, a way forward to branch out and, and grow. It hasn't necessarily been something we've been seeking out, but that, I think that that's a way to scale without really having any negative impact on, on the brand. You know, the scaling of to 100 nationally, we could scale in a way where we achieve certain minimums of quality and, and a certain consistency, and it would be mostly based on consistency, but we wouldn't be achieving the peaks that we achieve now. It's interesting because there's a, there's a real shift 
in the in the coffee world, we we shifted to like all the the manual artisan you know ha- manual brew methods, espresso machines where you're doing everything by hand, and now there's a shift towards a little bit more automation. So and the automated machines, um, they're not there yet, right? But they will be. And so what does that mean for us and our baristas over time? Do we start to think and plan for the shift of our baristas to be more of curators and and experts that can recommend and guide you in certain ways, but the actual preparation of the beverage is left to a machine? And uh, I think that's the future. We have started to think about what will our cafe in 10 years look like? Is there going to be a cash register? Probably not. You'll probably walk in and, and, you know, your app will greet you and say, hey, do you want the same you had yesterday? And you go, yeah, and then, okay, go sit down. We'll take it to you. You know, you won't have a, much of a human interaction at the beginning. Even though there will be a human there saying hi to you, it won't be a transactional-based interaction. It'll be more actually potentially even better than it is, much better than it is now because it's not about what would you like, how much, here you go. Okay, it'll pick it up over there. It'll be more, how's your morning going? Great. Okay, cool. Do you want a newspaper? Well, you probably won't need a newspaper because it'll be on your tablet. <laughs> it is a bad tablet. example, but, but I, get, I get what you mean, though. But it, it'll be more conversational and more about you and the barista and less about the exchange. You're almost describing a scenario that's similar to what's happening in traditional manufacturing. I mean, people are being displaced because they're an expert welder and then they're replaced by a robot that, that welds. But long-term, that results in a better quality product and better work for the person who was displaced. But there's some dislocation as you go. Yeah, that'll happen in the coffee world for sure. And, and I, but, but I think that when that happens, and I don't know when that'll be. That'll be when we test the machine and put it in, in one of our cafes next to a normal espresso machine and we, we make 5,000 drinks in a row or whatever it is and and we think that the coffee coming out of that is better than what our what the coffee coming out of our espresso machines with an expert barista is. So we're we're still a ways away. But when that happens, you could open a hundred. But anyways. Do you think at all about Starbucks and Tim's Hortons, I mean over the course of your day? Um, and if not, who do you think about as competitors and how do you think about them as competitors? I think of Starbucks as a competitor, for sure. Um, Tim Hortons, not as much, just because the product offering is so different. Mm -hmm. The price point is so different. But Starbucks, we share some similarities with. Our menus, we don't have as many that are like sugary drinks. Right. Um, Food's way better. Sure, yeah. (laughs) I mean, and and we have a real kitchen. But but from a coffee point of view, um, we, we certainly see them as, as competition and, and they're, they're obviously created a mega brand for themselves. And uh, so we're aware of what Starbucks is doing. And the, the key thing for us is really when it comes to competition is that so far, up until this today, we've been at the forefront of our industry. We're not chasing. We're, we're leading and we're sort of trying to break new ground. That's our future is to not be looking around or behind us to see what people are doing, but rather be focused on our goal and not blind to what's happening around us, but really keep your eye on the on the prize. And so I think there's a lot we can do still and we can improve with our 
colleagues that have other cafes and other roasteries in Calgary and across Canada to help grow the interest in the kind of coffee we're serving rather than compete with each other, collaborate a little bit more. It's a yo- very young industry. And so it, it, it needs, I think, you know, we had a lot of more collaboration a few years ago and now it's you know gotten a little bit more competitive. And I think maybe that's a bit cyclical and, and, and part of the immaturity of our own industry. But the my hope and my, my interest has always been on collaborating a little bit more and, and saying, let's, let's steal a few more customers from Starbucks rather than try to steal them from each other. Um, that, that has very little value to us collectively because we're fighting for a sliver of a pie. Let's make that sliver 1% bigger and we have no reason to fight for customers. This show is about those who have turned their passion into their profession, as you've clearly done. For those who love hanging out in coffee joints and perhaps dream of doing that for a living, what advice can you offer? The first thing that that I learned is that just be prepared to work really hard, especially in the the food service industry. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of hours. It's um, a lot of things go wrong. Um, You have uh, a lot of... um, emergencies and broken things and people not showing up and and so it, it really is a lot of work and you just have to be pre- prepared for it and um, I I sort of went from university to working in engineering jobs where I poured my you know blood sweat and tears into them so I, I worked really hard I worked weekends I worked evenings it didn't matter I that was just sort of how I was that was that's in my DNA but I certainly didn't expect to be working as hard as I do and I have when I started it. I had this like, notion of a coffee shop being this like really awesome, chill environment where you can talk to every customer and you, know, you get to know them all so well. And, and, you know, and, and you do to some extent, but you're always in a rush and you're always facing challenges. And so I think you know, being in business is... is defines you really by how you deal with those challenges because no book that you can read and, and training that you do really fully prepare it's sort of like parenthood a little bit you know you 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 think you know but you don't until you're there right on your website you are surprisingly candid about things which have not gone well is this ongoing introspection and self-analysis part of your brand yeah for sure when we hire new people we always tell them one of our underlying principles as a company is continuous improvement. And we're not shy about criticizing each other, almost to a fault. Uh, we spend a lot of time criticizing ourselves rather than celebrating. I, I firmly believe that it's got to be mostly on the criticizing and smaller on the celebrating. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, yeah, pat yourself on the back every so often, but really focus on like how are you going to be better tomorrow? And we, we work with that, with all the baristas, all the new baristas, all the new people that are coming through. We warn them. Say, look, when you're working the espresso machine, 
the next person next to you is is probably going to be more experienced than you. And if they see you making a, a shot of espresso that doesn't look good, they're going to tell you. And if they see you steaming milk that doesn't look good, they're going to tell you to re-steam it. Don't take it personally. They're just trying to make you better. You know, everyone's watching your customer interactions and if they're going to comment on it and, you know, your coffee ambassador is going to tell you, your manager is going to tell you, Sebastian is going to walk in and tell you. That's who we are. And don't take it personally. We're not here to beat you down. We're here to build you up. But you need to hear those things in order to be built up. If I just every day come in and tell you how great you are, we're not really being true to ourselves. So that's on the every employee level and as a company I think it's it's about also being true to ourselves and saying well yeah that didn't really work well why and uh, learning from it is there anything you would have done differently based on what you know now if you start all over again the the one thing I probably would have done different is on, on just on the on some of the financial elements we really like truly didn't plan that much at the beginning as far as paying ourselves saving paying off debt quickly like we were just in this mode of like, let's keep spending. And there was, again, this euphoria of like growth and popularity as far as, you know, being well-liked within our city. Sort of like, well, yeah, we grew 35% last year, so we'll probably grow again another 35% this year and another 30 and you know, and didn't really take into account that there will be more competition and that the economy might not be as strong. I think... I would have been a, a little smarter with our spending during during that time, but those those are also good lessons. You know, I, I think same with the service side of things. We were really focused on quality and not focused on service. And, and not that we provided bad service, but we were just so wrapped up in you as a customer don't know what you want. We're going to tell you what you want. And I'm so confident in it that I'm going to tell you why everything you've been drinking your whole life is bad. <laughs> and uh, so if, if the customer could see that it's actually coming from a good place, it's great. But that's hard in a, in a 20-second interaction. So if you go, can I get a dark roast? And I say, we don't have dark roast because that's the worst way of burning your coffee and not tasting the beautiful natural elements that are in these coffees that we work so hard to source. Right. You go, okay, so you don't have it and you're insulting me. Thank you. <laughs> right. And um, so, but we weren't trying to. We were just sharing this right. passion. Was it, your heart was in the right place. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it just wasn't coming out right. And so over time, we became more sensitive to that and trained ourselves and our staff. And the worst was that our staff picked up on that. They would be like, oh, they, they really give it to customers when they order something we don't have and that we don't believe in. Right. And so they would do it too. And so then it just became this. Well, maybe it became more obvious then when you could sort of take yourself out of the moment. It became a little more clear. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we, we, were, we train our staff to not to steam, our, for example, lattes to a certain temperature, cappuccinos to a certain temperature that, are, that is hot enough but not too hot because what happens to the sweetness and texture of the milk as you steam it it peaks at a certain temperature and then it starts to go down. So we don't want to get it. We want to hit it at that peak. Right. But sometimes, you know, you train people to stop steaming at a certain temperature, but then sometimes, you know, they're busy, they don't, they, their hand gets tired, desensitized, and the drink is served a little bit too cool. That's one of the first things the customer will taste it or will feel. My coffee's the cold. temperature, and they go, oh, geez, it's a little cold. And then they go to the barista and they go, hey, 
my coffee's a little cold. And then the barista will say, actually, your coffee's perfect. <laughs> right. <laughs> we steam it at this temperature because it maximizes sweetness and blah, blah, blah. And the, the customer is lost at that point, right? It's right. going, didn't you, you hear didn't me? You didn't hear me. That's right. <laughs> so we were so wrapped up with explaining and justifying why it should be. Because we were serving a, a latte purposely 10 degrees cooler than Starbucks. Right. Now, Starbucks, when you get a, a latte, I find personally hard to drink it right out of the... Uh, scalding hot. It's too hot. Yeah. But a lot of people actually prefer that or they're, they're not drinking it for 10 or 15 minutes. But for us, we noticed that we were developing this culture that even though it was coming from a good place, it was arrogance. And that's not who we are. We want to be inviting and welcoming and humble. Without compromising any of your values, but just approaching it in a different way. Yeah. So if someone says, can I get a dark roast? I train people to say, sure. We don't have dark roast, but I say, sure. We have a medium roast from uh, a producer in Guatemala. His name is Ricardo Zelaya. Really nice coffee. I think you'll like it. Can I uh, get you that? Or would you like to try it? 99 times out of 100, that sounds good. How do you like it? They, they take a quick sip. Oh, it's great. Awesome. So they're not, and a lot of times people aren't necessarily looking for a dark roast. They want it's bigger flavors or, yeah. or yeah. dark roast just means black coffee to them. And so, right. so keep it positive. Like we're not saying, yeah, sure. Here's your dark roast and it's a light roast. We're going, sure. We have a medium roast right. and keep that interaction positive and welcoming and informative that it's not, you're not just getting a generic coffee. It's coming from a producer who does things well, but it's done in a welcoming way that, and you start feeding people little bits of information, just little bits at a time. And uh, rather than bombarding them with our propaganda on day one, which was what we, we felt that you came that first time and you wanted dark roast. I was going to tell you why you shouldn't drink dark roast. And, right. you know, we and realized. And their character because they would have asked for it in the first place. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, the, the, Customer service, especially in an environment where you get repeat customers like ours, is all about developing trust. You're not getting that on one or two or three interactions. That takes time. So uh, if I really want you to try a fruity coffee, but that's not what you're used to, I'm not going to suggest that to you for a while. I'm just going to get to know you and go, hey, you know, you want the same as, as yesterday? Sure, no problem. How do you like it today? It's a little different, right? Yeah, okay, cool. And then they, you know, oh, we have this really cool coffee today. You should try it. And if you don't like it, I'll just give you your regular, but just right. give it a try. Then they try to go, whoa, this coffee tastes like banana. They go, I know, isn't that cool? <laughs> and they go, how did you do that? I said, oh, well, they do a different processing method. And, and you know, you should go on, on our website and read about it. Oh, cool, natural processed coffees. I've never heard of that. That's really neat. Now, these guys become coffee aficionados without them knowing. But we wanted to turn the whole world into aficionado overnight. And so for us, that, that's, a, that's a big lesson in, I think, in any passion-driven business. And I see that with like young startups now that are really passionate about those things is temperate, slow it down a little bit, feed bits of information, don't lose the passion. That's what differentiates you. But think about balance in terms of service and in terms of profitability. I would not lose that passion. I would just apply it a little bit different and 
and prioritize it a little bit different um, if I were to do it all over again. Sebastian? No, not really. We're just starting to scratch the surface with what we're doing with coffee. We're in a really exciting time for coffee. You know, we've been in business for 10 and a half years now, and, and I feel like some of our most exciting times have yet to come. I don't really feel like I dream of doing anything else. I, I dream of like building some comfort in the business where I can step away and, and learn some other subjects and, and study a little bit more and travel and, and be a little more re relaxed for a period of time and, you know, come back and get into the business. But I haven't really had any thoughts of doing anything else. I mean, I, long-term, truly, I would love to make wine one day. But, um, well, I was going to say when you were talking about this notion of making the world aficionados, is, it, my comment was going to be, you're approaching it more like wine than coffee. Yeah, for sure. I mean, wine is our example of what coffee could become. But wine is just a lot more advanced than coffee. I mean, coffee, like specialty coffee, truly specialty coffee is only, you know, depending on who you ask, 30 to 50 years old. Specialty wine has been around for a long time. We are maybe, you know, a few hundred years behind wine. And I think we'll catch up. But it's going to take some time. And, and you, I already see it. If you look at the, the generation of coffee drinkers now, they're starting to be more discerning by compared to my parents. It's night and day. So, but it's truly generational. I think in maybe two to four decades, we're going to see uh, sophistication in coffee. And the, the back end, the, the coffee producers are going to be in a position to be able to back it up too. Uh, whereas, you know, 10 years ago, it was a lot more difficult for them to say, oh, we've got six different varieties in our farm and separate them all. And they all have a different taste profile. They would blend all those and they wouldn't even know what varieties they have now. It's like, oh, well, I've got, you know, things are, they do gen you know, genetic testing. Um, well, and they talk about the terroir of wine, don't they? Like for sure. The, the, you know, what the earth brings to the wine, the yeah. actual. And, you know, with coffee, it's very much the same way. Mm -hmm. It's a bit more nuanced. And because the processing along the way can take steps to neutralize that nuance, it's harder for the general public to realize it. You know, coffee is a living product when it leaves the country of origin. And by the time it arrives here, I would estimate that 70 to 80% of the coffee that leaves the country of origin and arrives at the country where it's going to be consumed, it's damaged because of the travel. So, so then, you know, those natural qualities... Even before it's roasted, a lot of them are, are being lost. Sebastian, in all the interviews that you've done, what's the one question that you've never been asked that you wish you had been? And what's your answer to that question? We've taken a lot of steps to become vertically integrated. And, but one of the areas where we're still relying and always been relying on others is on, on the pro actual production of the raw coffee. And I spend so much time at the coffee farms and, and I've 
done so much reading and same with Phil. I'm surprised that no one ever asked, you know, when are you going to become a coffee farmer? So when are you going to become a coffee farmer? Well, soon. I mean, we've been thinking about that for a long time and uh, mostly to create this sort of experimental learning center for uh, ourselves and eventually for everyone we work with. And so we had an opportunity recently uh, in Honduras to purchase a, a small piece of land near Santa Barbara National Park in the northern part of Honduras and partner with a coffee farmer who we've been working with since 2011. His name is Margarito Herrera. And, uh, and Margarito has been um, just a great partner of ours, has grown a lot in terms of the kind of work he does at the farm. His coffee is superb. He's very committed. We've become friends, and, and I, I really have a lot of respect and trust the way that he works. So when this opportunity came up, it was really a no-brainer. Financially, it, it was a very reasonable commitment for us. And Margarito was very keen on, on running it and, and helping administer it. And uh, and I was very keen on, on having very strong input. I want the farm to be organic. I want to uh, try some different soil maintenance techniques. They're, they're not new. They're actually quite old. But over the course of the last couple of decades of, of becoming more uh, dependent on products to run your farm, like you know, fertilizers and herbicides and pesticides and some of these practices of maintaining the, the soil and the biodiversity of that soil have fallen by the wayside. And uh, so I'm really interested in, in rekindling some of those practices, which he actually knows quite well because his dad used to do them. Nice. And, and experimenting with different varieties and creating processes that are a little bit more almost industrial grade as opposed to saying we'll ferment this coffee till the morning and then you know we kind of look at it and, and we can tell when it's done that mostly works but what that results is is in one coffee so that batch of coffee tastes really good and then they do it again and it tastes good then the next time they do it it tastes amazing the processes were very similar but that last bit of detail is what turns something into from really good to amazing i'm really interested in how do we get amazing every single time you're you're back to approaching it like winemaking again by the sounds of it yeah when you go into a modern winery like in the okanagan sure it's very clinical it's like everything's stainless steel and yeah uh, yeah i mean you've got physical and chemical reactions that are taking place that are um it's, it's not black magic you need a good raw vine to start with and wine. And same thing with coffee. You need a good raw coffee tree. And then from there, it's about capturing that potential properly, consistently, and measuring inputs. And from those inputs, knowing when it's time to move on to the next step properly. And that's done to some extent in very large farms that produce sort of middle of the road quality and then that's how they get their consistency and they have the resources to do that but the the smaller farms that have these gems of coffees realize that potential only a portion of the time because their traditional method is so reliant on inaccurate ways of measuring these these inputs we want to mechanize a little bit we want to use technology we want to do our own research we've done some some work with the university of calgary uh, 
microbiology department. That's, that's our goal with, with this farm. And it's a bit of a distraction from our day to day. But again, this is how we are going to continue to push forward and, and innovate and stay at the front and rather than, than, you know, looking behind us and looking around us, really, you know, being first and leading edge in, in what we do. And uh, especially when we look at things like equipment automating and, and, you know, the baristas shifting, then it becomes more about, well, what, what makes you, you? Because before, when we first started, what made us, Phil and Sebastian, so unique is that you had these baristas who were so highly trained on all the mechanical elements of making you a cup of coffee. Right. And now these baristas are now going to become more sommeliers of coffee uh, rather than people who make coffee with precision. And that's not going to be overnight. But So then how do we evolve? How do we continue to add value to our customers? The, the farms seem like a very costly, not just from capital, but just time and energy endeavor, but one that is, I think, a little bit of more towards the future. Like the farm is more, this is going to be our future in 10 years because it's not, we're not even going to see coffee from it in, for another five. So it's really not about the short term. One thing I always like to do when I'm doing these interviews is I always like to leave the door open for a return visit. And what you just described gives me that sort of perfect segue to that question, whether or not I can come back in a year and talk to you more about that specifically, um, or maybe less or maybe more time than that, and just see how that has continued to evolve. Can we do this again at some point, Sebastian? Because it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion at a level that I never thought existed within the world of coffee. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that, that um, you found it interesting and for sure, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do it. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Sebastian. It's been excellent, and I look forward to the next time. Thanks, Thanks. for being on the Work, the Work Show. Thank you. That brings to an end Episode 12 of the Work Network Show, and I would like to once again thank our very special guest, Sebastian Stabsib, co-founder of Phil and Sebastian Coffee Roasters. It's been an amazing story. If you like what you've heard, please rate us on iTunes or Facebook. It really helps. We're also on Patreon and would be honored if you would consider becoming a patron of the show, which starts for as little as $1 per episode. Our website is worknotwork.show, and our podcast can be found on Apple's iTunes. Simply look for Work Not Work, no spaces, in the podcast section. We're on Twitter, at Work Not Work, and all of your favorite social media platforms. We look forward to hearing your feedback, good or bad, so please leave your comments on one of our platforms. The show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Terence C. Gannon, and is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Canada. All rights are reserved. Thank you, Michelle, my lovely wife, for your continuing support and your infinite patience. Finally, thank you, our faithful audience, for supporting the Work Not Work show, the show about people who, like Sebastian, have turned their passion into their profession.